Hey, I'm Amar Chohan. And I'm Charlotte Williams. Thanks for tuning in to Love, Hate, Create, our podcast about the world of modern advertising. We speak with the smartest people from the industry to find out whether we should be outraged or optimistic about where things are heading. Today's guest is Grace Francis. They are the Global Chief Creative and Design Officer at Wong Duty, which is a creative experience agency that has offices and studios in the US, Europe and Asia. Previously, Grace has been at the likes of Droga 5 and Grey, and they are also a guest lecturer at the University of Arts London and Hyper Island. It's great to have them on the show today. Grace, such a pleasure to meet you. Um, now, tell us, first of all, you are um, barely 40. I know you you hit that milestone fairly recently. Um, tell us in your career to date, what has been your, I guess, your highest point, your proudest moment? Um, and also what's been your lowest point? Thank you. Start with your highest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saying barely 40. It makes me feel young and fresh. I will carry that with me for as, you know the other 360 days of the year that I can. Um, that's wonderful. I think for me, the highs have been the moments when you are with people and you can empower them to have their work put through. And sometimes that's about a new piece of technology. Sometimes that's about um, a bit of creative that deserves to be in the world. But when you're sitting in a room around a table and everybody is uh, able to contribute, it's not just that they're welcome to be there, they're welcome to add. Uh, when I first joined Grey, I remember Nils Leonard sitting in rooms and saying, hey, you haven't said anything. What do you want to share? Or someone would say something, or he or Leo Raymond would say, that's incredible, that's great, tell me more. Uh, and on my first day, one of them said to me, what are we missing here, what are we missing? And I had to sit there on this big pitch, we won the pitch, it was M&S, on this big pitch, and uh, say, well, hang on, I think I can see this. And it was welcomed. And that kind of environment is an environment I've looked to recreate everywhere I've gone in my career. Where everyone has a voice. And also... You know, the junior can say to you, "This you're messing this up. This is not how TikTok's done. <laughs> what do you know? And he can go, thank you. Yes, yeah. I'm old. Tell me. Tell me everything. Yeah. That sort of, I get, yeah, the, the sort of idea of, of psychological safety. Okay. And let's go, let's bring it down then. Um, and let's talk about what's been your lowest moment, would you say? I think there are pieces of work that deserve to exist in the world and... There have been a couple where we've wanted to do something really important and the client hasn't just been ready. And uh, I remember working very, very hard on a piece for um, for queer rights and the client being keen right up until they saw it and then just realising we're five years too early. Um, and it's not about finding a different client, it was just nobody's ready to do this. So I've had to learn when advertising is used to bring something into the world and help make good connections between brands and people to find a pair of jeans that make your bum look great and to pick an alcohol that you absolutely love. Um, and when sometimes you can do something for the world, but other times that has to take a step back and, you know, maybe we should have gone into politics instead. Uh, but those moments feel low. And I think over the last 10 years, those moments have got less and less because brands want to show up as leaders on the world stage and they can. If you've got a C-suite title, and you belong at a large company, you can shape culture if you choose. And, and clients so often are the the ones that stand in the way, unfortunately, right? What are 
what is it that you think needs to be done to get those clients to take the creative leap that's needed sometimes? So I think one of the things I've seen before is this really bold attitude to say, we know what's there. Uh, Droga 5 used to have this idea of pitch to lose. We're going to tell you what the answer is. And uh, hey, if you don't like it, we're going to tell the next person and they're going to benefit from it instead. But one of the problems with pitch to lose is it doesn't take you along the journey. It doesn't say to you, this is how we got there. And what it also doesn't do is recognize that, you know, a CMO might have a tenure of 18 months, two years. And we've got to say to them, hey, if you make this change, you're going to see a dip before you see a rise. So we'll hold your hand through that bit, but this is the risk. And here's how we're going to do it on your timeline, thinking about your bonus structure, thinking about your boss, your personal reputation. And the more we can dissect that and say, look, here's the bold idea, but here's how we get here. Here's here's the buried treasure, and this is what it's going to take to get it up, um, the better. How do, how do you do that when the, the tenure of the CMO is often so fleeting? Because actually... My immediate thought is it's all about relationships, isn't it? You've got to build that trust and build that deep relationship. But sometimes that's quite hard to do in in a kind of six-month period where their neck's on the line sometimes as well. Yeah, totally. And I think all good work, uh, whether it's with an existing client or on a pitch, comes from emotional and intellectual investment. You can see that we're smart and creative, but if you also like us, that goes a long way. And so often I see in pitch situations where an agency has one but not the other. Uh, and if you can bring both those things in, there's trust there. But the other thing is we'll sit, you know, we, we, we just did it. We'll say, well, hang on, the clients, the blocker, they're the one who has got their neck on the line. They're the one who sh- who's shaping the future of their organization. You've got to be in tandem with them. Um, and that includes appetite to risk as well. Um, sometimes really good work comes out from understanding, hey, this year you can do this much, next year you're going to do 10x for that. We'd like to take a quick moment to thank one of our sponsors. Massive Music is a global music agency and partner for some of the world's leading brands and agencies. With 10 offices worldwide and over two decades of expertise, they deliver everything you need in the field of music, voice and sound, from sonic branding and activations to music for commercials and licensing. Just to name a few, Massive Music works with clients such as Heineken, Nike, The North Face, Philips and Colgate. They also provided the music for this very podcast. On top of being a lovely bunch, they're an official sound partner for brands on TikTok. And since 2021, they're part of Song Trader, the world's largest B2B music company. Their ultimate goal is to combine musical craft with strategy to elevate your project or campaign through the power of music in sound, which, if you ask us, is oh so needed in the advertising world of today. If you're interested, send an email to lovehatecreate at massivemusic.com so they know you came through us. Needless to say, they're all ears. So Grace, you're you're familiar with the, the format of this podcast. It's all about what people love, they hate, and the change that they create in, in our advertising industry or whatever moniker we decide to use today. So why don't you kick us off and, and tell us what is it that you love about this world So for me, I love the impossible and the unseen connections of advertising. And sometimes we don't get to know about them for years at a time, but when they come through, it's absolutely miraculous. And for me, certain ads have literally shaped and changed my life. And uh, I love being able to tell those people 
that they did that. And sometimes, li- literally this week, I, I had a conversation with someone else in the industry um, about a piece of work he did starting out that got me into this space. Tell us about that. Can you tell us? Yeah, I'd love to. So we were just doing a piece for the drum, talking about like the best out of home. And I was talking about um, this amazing piece that saved a Lido in London. And it was for Evian. And the Lido was closing. There was no money. And uh, Cake, who are now uh, you know part of Havas, um, came in and had this idea of popping the Evian logo at the bottom of this beautiful clear pool. And at the same time, returning the Lido to everyone in London, a real piece of London history and heritage. And within that, um, you know, there were stories that maybe it went over the Heathrow flight path. I don't know how apocryphal that is, um, but it was a gorgeous spot. And I saw this in a book when I was 17 or 18, living in um, an industrial town in a, um, a council estate, super poor, didn't know what advertising was. And this idea that you could have a skill that persuaded people and did something good in the world thrilled me and I I had I just had no idea it was possible and I thought okay I don't even know what to call this but I want to do that we popped this in the drum and um Mark Whelan who's now the chairman and chief creative officer um have us sent me a note and just said hey I did this when I was a kid and I didn't know what I was doing and I love that it's brought you into the industry and uh that story has been sitting at dinner tables for years and how lovely that he saw it and he chose to reach out I love it. And it might come full circle. You might hear the same feedback about a piece of your work. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Exactly. My hope is that someone who comes to intern and start with me will one day employ me. Give it five or ten years. Um, let them do an amazing startup. I'll come and give them a bit of free advice as their intern instead. That's a great aspiration. Uh, when, when you were 17, 18 then, what was your thought process about getting into the industry like did you did you know where to look how did you find your way in did you find it easy or was it um something you had to work hard for yeah I mean I, I came from a super poor background and I spent a lot of time masking you will hear from I'm from Portsmouth but you won't hear it in my voice because my parents really really wanted me to hide that because they thought that would be the best opportunity um you know not to sound like Kathy Burke and gimme 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 which is Fair enough, and, and I'm very thankful for that every day. But with that masking, I I was taught that's what I had to do, to go and be in professional places, not just advertising. Uh, but I also, you know, I was a smart kid, and, and the careers counsellor would say to me, you know, what do you want to do? And I'd say, well, I want to do something with writing. I, I think I'm good at persuading people, maybe sales, maybe marketing. I didn't really know what. She said, well, you might as well want to be an astronaut. You know, you need to go and work in a shop. Um, the idea of even working in an office building there was completely crushed. Uh, and it took me um, years to work out how to get here. But the first thing I did was book a one-way train to London. And uh, I thought I'd work it out from there. And it's, and to be honest, it's it's been absolutely glorious. Um, because I'm now in a space where I see people from all over the country and sometimes all over the world in my different studios. Um, some of them have been to Miami Ad School. Some of them haven't been to university altogether and they're just working stuff out because they know this is an industry where you can be funny and smart and weird and that's a bonus. So that's amazing. So one-way ticket to London, never went back, never looked back. Yeah, absolutely. And like, there's a really interesting thing that we, you know, I, I grew up sort of at the end of the 90s um, and 
there's the writer down Klaus used to say, it, you, we, we want to put something in the world and we wouldn't be able to see it, so we'd go to a big town. Um, and now we can look on the internet for him. He was like, I don't like the internet. You're, you, you can just stay in your basement, in your small town, and find the comic book or the piece of art or the novel or the film online already, so why do it? And what's happened is we've gone even further, and for me now there's like an abundance of creativity sitting on TikTok, sitting online, whether we're chronically online or we're dipping in. And um, that only emboldens us to say, well, what would happen if I had a budget? You've been doing this in your bedroom on nothing with a couple of million people watching on TikTok. I would love to give you a budget and ask, what are you going to do for this supermarket, for this alcohol brand, for this clothing brand? It's going to be incredible. Have some money. Do, do you think it's uh, easy for people like yourself that were 17, 18 from a city like Portsmouth or further afield even? To, to get into the industry now. There's lots of initiatives out there, but I get the sense that it's pretty slow progress. Yeah, it's still really hard. And we know that there are two blockers. There's the pragmatic blocker of getting here. In many respects, I was an idiot for getting on a train and working out where to stay and building a life. Um, and I was fortunate and lucky. Um, but there's a there's a big risk pragmatically of how to get here. You get the opportunity and how to follow through on the opportunity. And then the other side is when you think you have that opportunity there, is it what you think? Um, so we know there's huge amounts of disenfranchisement, um, unconscious and conscious discrimination for anyone who's minoritized. Um, but I also know a really smart strat who went to Eton, turned up um, in a grad program and was told, you're pale, male and stale, fuck off. We don't need you. Um, and wow. that's the other side of it as well. Now, a hundred doors open if you went to eat, a thousand doors open. And I think there's probably a desire to say, hey, we're going to close the door because of this. But radical inclusivity says we need to create an environment for there to be some of us, some of each of us, um, not one token trans person, one token person of color, one token disabled person, and then a bunch of people who went to private school. Um, but equally, he had a different experience to life, and I think everybody deserves to have a seat at the table. Um, we've just got to change how hard it is to get there. Um, and that's something that is systematic and needs to change within our industry, and we need to do so much better on. And there are pockets, but... And it takes time, doesn't it? Because it's so embedded and woven into cultures and who's on that C-suite. And, you know, it... it, it it's not going to happen. I mean, there's so much talk about it in the industry, isn't there, about the barriers to entry. And I think, thankfully, some of that talk is turning into action. But it's not It's not an overnight miracle, miracle pill. Yeah, totally. And again, like I've spoken a little bit about masking, hiding my gender, my sexuality, um, hiding my working class background. But that is a freedom I have that other people don't have. You can't hide uh your religion you can't hide um your race and some you know some of us are in a situation where they feel they can't hide that gender identity as well um so even within this there's these layers of complexity and i, I would often when i went to a new place look for another minoritized or marginalized person to get an indication so you'd see a practicing muslim who was given a prayer room and that prayer room isn't in a basement um, in a dirty, dusty corner, but is 
um, a space that is clean and well lit and private and considered. Uh, and that's very, very different than being queer or trans, but knowing, hey, if this person is respected when they are minoritized in this organization, the chances are I might be as well. So I think we look for these clues and again, we look for allies in this way. And it sounds like, so, so we're obviously still up, we're on the love point, but it, it sounds to me that you said earlier about you can be weird and you can be, you know, this industry does kind of embrace that quirkiness, that weirdness, people's idiosyncrasies. Is that is that something then that you genuinely love um, about advertising? Yeah, because people come from really different places. I've worked with someone who ran a series of hotels and then came into advertising. I've worked with someone who was a criminal and came into advertising. And that space to be able to say, um, the lateral connection, being smart, um, being sharp, being witty, being playful, uh, and turning up uh, as yourself once you know the environment is safe is really freeing. And when we allow people to be themselves, the work is better because of it. And it, I think we have to be. We, I think it's very dangerous to say that everything is about in service to the work. Um, but we still need to use that as a proof point to say, yeah, hire this sane kid who doesn't have any experience who's just saying something interesting. I am. Um, I just bought a car. So turning forty. I obviously bought a hybrid and then I bought a Volvo because I really wanted to ruin any chance of anyone finding me attractive ever again. And, and <laughs> very safe, very safe car. Is that a 40 thing? You have to buy a Volvo? I mean, I'm over, way over 40. I don't have a Volvo. Don't have too much a Volvo. You can, you can have your midlife crisis and, and buy a, a really sexy car, little convertible, um, or you can really double down on, on being safe and boring and... I don't know, I'm a vegan and I don't drink. And so the Volvo felt like it was... See, I don't think it's... Well, actually, is it, it is a bit boring. And it is, of course, the safest car on the on the roads. Um, but I also think it's like the cultivated choice, the Volvo. It's kind of cool, but not trying to be cool. Well, that's what I tell myself anyway. You sell that. I mean, I worked for Grey for years. You've had Volvo. And I swear... It's, yes, of course. Seeing Volvo there that I, I know nothing about cars. I was like, brilliant. I've <laughs> I've listened to the subliminal advertising for years, worked on these projects. Yes, I'll buy a Volvo. So I bought a Volvo. I went to the centre. You can't buy new cars at the moment because of the lack of chips. And um, the guy opposite said, oh, I love advertising. Can I can I tell you an idea I've got? And he pitched me an idea. And the idea was so good, I, I texted my second-in-command and then I showed him the text and, and like my ECD was like, this is great. I love this. Really funny, really sharp. And it was genuinely a good idea. And um, I showed him the table and said, look, my mate thinks too. I'm, I'm not just talking rubbish. And we started I, at the end. I was like, okay, give me your email. And now I'm trying to get him on a DNAD program. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Um, you know, unfortunately, being a used car salesman is sometimes a punchline of a joke, especially if you're a bit older. Um, yeah. But you know what? He's funny. He's sharp. He's weird. He is a tenacious, excellent salesman. He's working class. He's a person of color. And it's like, do you know you could earn double sitting on your butts writing this kind of stuff all day? And um, so we're seeing what we can do. And uh, and that sales yeah. skill is actually half the half the battle, isn't it? When you're you're isn't in a room it? with clients and pitching, selling those ideas. Yes, and I still bought a car from him, so he got his commission. He can pick you. We'd have gone full circle, Ben, wouldn't we? If uh, one day 
he ends up on a podcast talking about either some of his work or the industry. Yeah. He can tell people how he sold you a car one day and uh, pitched you an idea at the same time. And that's how he got into the industry. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. It's the Yeah. Amazing. Also, um, Volvo won a Grand Prix, didn't they? They did some fantastic work around um, the crash test dummies. I don't know if you saw that. It's one of my favorite ever campaigns where they reduce the um, accidents of female, because crash test dummies were tested on male bodies, um, they redid it using female bodies and then they open sourced the work, which was quite phenomenal. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And the ability to tell stories of what people, people who are doing significant work is, I think, another thrill in advertising, right? They're doing the right work. We saw the same with thing with Life Paint. It's like, here is a thing that needs to be told. And yes, it will help you sell more of your product, but also you're a company who's pushing something good into the world that needs to be shared. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's not even advertising. Um, brilliant. So, so Grace, let's, let's move on. Um, if you don't mind and let's lower the, the vibe slightly, unfortunately, and talk, talk about what you hate in advertising, hate being a very strong word. I know, um, what you strongly dislike about advertising, the industry, the anything. So for me, it's probably the idea that commercial creativity is still seen as a monolith both from the outside and when we're in as well. So recognizing that um, when I go to my studios in America, if I go and have dinner with someone and you tell them you work in advertising, they're disgusted. It's like us and lawyers, awful people. Um, and this idea still that we're stuck with this 1960s mad men impression that we are here to manipulate and persuade and trick you and then run away. You know, the salesman can't knock on every door, so let's convince you with whatever snake oil we have. And today I think we're in a position um, where so many of us are working in a space where we're looking for authentic connection. We see it really well with direct-to-consumer brands where you have a founder who is passionate about something and wants to connect with the right audience. And that ability to make those connections, whether it's through storytelling and emotion or if it's through rational change, um, feels like something I'd love the rest of the world to understand. And maybe I'm just asking for my in-laws to care about what I do. <laughs> um, but even in our rooms, I think sometimes we beat ourselves up. Here we are getting people to eat more butter. And I don't think that's been true for 30 or 40 years, not just on the bus or anything. It's amazing how we can't shake that stigma, right? I think there was some research a couple of years ago that um, pointed out that after politicians, yes. we were the, the least trusted profession out there in the world. Yeah. Only only those corrupt politicians were less trustworthy than the ad world, which is just bonkers. Would you, why, why do you think that is? Why can't we get rid of that? I, mean, I think some of it is... Um... We're quite a closed group, right? I I go out and drink with my friends in the industry. Um, and when I see people who are in other industries, um, they're either bored by what we do, feeling the walls go up immediately because they think we're going to push something onto them, um, or they're disappointed that we aren't next door, that we aren't in a production company, um, we aren't in a TV space. Um, so I think it's about accepting and lifting up that commercial creativity 
uh, exists in the world and is good. It doesn't have to just be changing a crash test dummy and telling the story. Um, we can bring brevity and wit and amusement. Um, and again, in previous eras, we have really, you know, especially in the UK, I think we've really had pride in the kind of work that we've made, that it's turned a smile. The fact that we now, for quite a number of years, have got a great excitement around Christmas commercials. Um, that feels like something that everybody, you know, whatever you're celebrating and, and whatever means you have, there's a bit of excitement there. Um, and also just saying which ones you do and don't like. Like, get the red pen out and tell us what you thought was rubbish. Um, so that kind of collective community, I think, really needs to come back um, for us to, to celebrate that, you know, we make little, clever, funny, smart things for people to give them two minutes to consider something. That's, yeah, it'd be great. Yeah, and I think that's it, isn't it? Is is There are a few naysayers mentioning no names, but they tend to be older generation who sort of say advertising is not what it used to be. And, you know, these big funny ads that used to make us all laugh, the Hamlet, you know, the classic, classic ads. Um, but actually, I, I, you know, I guess it's just splintered the way that we consume media. So making someone laugh on TikTok or whatever is is just a different way of making someone laugh and having fun, right? And again, not all work has to be purposeful. Like you said, it's not about the the Volvo ad all the time, is it? It's about just bringing a bit of fun. Is that what you think? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think what shifted though is that we're still, attention is still the thing we exchange. Watch this because I want your attention. It's just that you used to be owned by brands and creatives and now the attention isn't going to get you to buy something it's going just to get more audience numbers um especially if you're on spaces like tiktok or instagram which in itself is worthy um but we expect our entertainment and we expect it for free and we expect not to be sold something as well um and that shift uh means it's it's harder to take up that space yeah i guess the role of traditional media then becomes actually more important because it sets the message or the that 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 time to grab attention apart from what people are getting in that splintered fashion right do you think of course people have talked about uh, the death of of television for so long and yes there's lots of that's out there to point towards the decline but still people are consuming ads there and it's it's getting cut through in a different way right yeah it completely is and Years and years ago, Richard Turley, who rebooted, you know, Bloomberg Mag, and before that, uh, rebooted uh, MTV, understood that idea of short, segmented, randomised experiences that made MTV so great originally when we were watching music promos, and wanted to bring it back. It was just a little bit early, but he essentially invented TikTok ten years before it existed. Um, with things like, you know, YKTV, um, and it's neurochemically a little dose of something fantastic and then something completely different is really, really appealing to our brains. That randomised reward, I like this one, I don't like that one. It's it's the supersonic version of your email. Are you going to get an email from your boss saying, here's some extra work, or are you going to get an email from your partner going, bunk off early, come home? Um, maybe it's going to be something great, maybe it's going to be something rubbish. Uh, we need that thrill um, yeah. And that's what TV adverts used to do. It used to be, I'm not making a cup of tea, I'm watching the ads. 
so yeah so fascinating when you look at look at it like that so you, you so i guess what we're saying is that that short-term fix that instant gratification you you're seeing it as kind of i guess a, a positive in the in the sense of like it helps with you produce more endorphins some people are very you know they're very critical aren't they of tiktok you know there's a massive thing around how it should i was listening to something about how people are lobbying for it to be banned but are you are you saying it's just doing what humans already enjoy and it's just playing into the yeah so it, i think it's um, sorry go on go on no 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 i was just yeah just just play you, you know is it just basically appealing to our what is our human nature our natural instincts yeah, I mean, I think the whole of the internet, anything online is designed to keep you there, unconsciously or consciously, and um, our willpower alone can't make us turn our phones over. So if we acknowledge that, I'm not saying we submit to it, but if we acknowledge that, um, TikTok is, has an amazing algorithm that it will show you the things you like. And if you want to know what someone is like, um, ask them what's on that TikTok page or put them in front of TikTok for 15 minutes. And if the person comes back and says oh, wow, it was a load of videos of uh, shoving people into lakes um, and other mean pranks. You know that person is a mean prank person because that's what they have optimised and chosen for. Yeah, yeah. But there's, you know, there's some great spaces. Also, really good question for first date. It's a very popular first date question I'm hearing um, where you can compare what's on your TikTok. It's a, so it's, it's a real lens into who you are. But I don't think it's harmful. I think, um, I think, being chronically online is part of existing today and it's important to go outside and breathe fresh air and kiss someone you love um but fuck if it can bring you joy isn't that nice can't we just have a little bit of something nice yes and it does that i suppose it's just the dark side of it isn't there or as 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 there is with many spaces on the internet and the impact on young girls in particular is something that frightens me as the the father of a um, uh, a young girl. She's not old enough to use the internet yet, but that's the one thing that frightens me about parenting the most. And actually, the blame often ends up landing on the advertising industry's doorstep because essentially these businesses are funded by ad money, aren't they? It's, it's marketing dollars and budgets that are keeping, propping those big tech companies up Let's put the Chinese surveillance all, uh, aside for now because that's a whole nother topic on, a, on another podcast probably. But it's a tough one, isn't it? Because we want to we wanna participate on these platforms. That's where a lot of the money is obviously going and it's probably not going to help us shed the, um, the lack of trust and the, the monolith type attitude that we're on the receiving end of, right? Yeah. There's, I think that's completely true. And one of the interesting things that's happening on the internet at the moment is as your daughter grows up, she can exist in spaces that are designed for her and protected in a way that we historically couldn't. It used to just be um, when we were growing up, you could be wandering into all sorts of dangerous and nasty yeah. stuff um, with the wrong click. Um, Reddit used to be a terrifying place. Uh, but now... Reddit started making everything searchable. If you've got a rare disease, you can connect with people around the world who have, you know, if you're one in 5,000, one in 10,000, you can connect with people who have that disease, who can tell you who their doctor is, who can talk about what works for them and doesn't work for them. Now, it's not the same as talking to a doctor, but you have that community to commiserate, to exchange ideas. 
And that's also true if you've just got into silkscreen painting or anything you can think of. And um, that same thing is, is sort of echoing in TikTok. And so as a responsible and loving parent, you will show your daughter the world as she needs to see it. And she can move through the internet in a safe way where you know um, she can find joy and she can find community. Um, as we push into metaverse, again, that's an area currently being made by one group of people. And so we need to think about how those spaces can be safe um, for all of us and for each of us. Uh, but with the way um, Unreal Energy and uh, Unity are working, some of the most interesting metaverse spaces won't be built by brands. They'll be built by a girl in her spare room over the course of a couple of months on the weekend. And that's quite cool. Definitely. Very cool. Very cool. There's Web3. Yeah, there's Web3. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't mean to sound like a um, cynical old dad. Um, it's just frightening, isn't it? Um, because of the the bad things that happen on platforms like TikTok versus all of the good that it can bring. And the same goes for things like Web3. Speaking of which, what's your take on that then? So Web3 is something that before ChatGPT took up every single page on the internet, it seems, um, was the trend du jour, right? The technology, the platform du jour. How do you think that's going to enable our folk in the industry? I think it allows us, well, I, I think we'll still see fragmented experiences recognizing that you know metaverse was a dystopian word from a sci-fi writer we love to i mean we're the worst at appropriating things in culture already and giving them new names so we can't complain about when someone brands and lifts up the metaverse um but i think we'll start to see from these fragmented spaces more collective spaces i think we will see um things like governance coming through and i think that will allow brands to exist in a way where they don't have to build the framework they don't have to build the scaffolding they can be part of um, communities without having to make it themselves they can try things out one of the most interesting things um, you can do if you're interested in this space is to have a look at the ip for various companies um, registering their logos in um, web3 kind of spaces uh, and you'll see their intent even if that intent is going to take five years um, and that's particularly interesting if you think about payment partners, shopping, um, and looking at commerce as it exists in Asia as well. Yeah, absolutely. Really exciting. exciting. I think um, we're past that hype phase, aren't we? Um, obviously, chat, like I said, chat, B, chat GPT is the thing that's taking up all the airwaves at the moment. And the NFT craze has, has, has kind of gone off the boil. And there are people quietly building in the Web3 space, which again is another another podcast for another day. Um, but I think in the next kind of six to 12 months, we will see some actually meaningful, interesting branding executions. Of course, there are some out there already, but some brands that are, are getting to grips with it and doing some, some actually tangibly good stuff. Yeah. I think we're also seeing the... Oh, I'm about to get really dark. I'm sorry. I think we're also seeing... Do it. Do it. We're still on hate. <laughs> the, the human cost of something like chat, like chat GPT, um, the people who had to sit and look at the worst content humanity could create to make sure that the AI would not bring it out. And this isn't just text. This is also video. And those people um, are working in conditions where they might be earning one or two dollars an hour. Um, they are people of color. 
um, they are in situations where their human soul is not being protected for the kind of work that they have to do at the cost of um, producing this AI. And gatekeeping um, from terrible atrocities is exactly what needs to happen when we're talking about artificial intelligence, but at what cost? And which humans, again, are being exploited um, to be able to move into this new space? And that worries me greatly. Um, and I know we need AI at the cost of giving people PTSD. Yeah, just creating another type of sweatshop. Yeah, it's exactly a new, somehow more horrific type of sweatshop. Whilst on the other end, billion, multi-billion dollar valuations and yeah. future secured for a whole lot of uh, people that live probably in West Coast America. Yeah, yeah, very dull kind of belly. Yeah. Step change then. So we've done love, we've done hate. What's the change that you would create to ensure that we as an industry then have a, a prosperous future? So we spoke a little bit about tech. For me, it's about re-establishing boundaries at work, not just for our industry, but really for all industries. We're working all the time. We're on every channel. No one wants a production app update on that Insta DMs, but that, that's kind of how we are. I know a lot of people who can't open WhatsApp anymore because they know they're going to be hit with a work group chat. Um, and so we're, you know, we jump to new channels, jump to Signal or Telegraph or a competitor to actually have those conversations. But your mum is still on WhatsApp. What are you going to do? Um, but we, at, I think, I never thought in our lifetime we would be able to uh, predominantly work from home. And not all of us can, but um, in our industry, it feels like most agencies have one or two days in a week. Uh, and there's freedom or autonomy. I thought we'd never get that. But... Um, what I also see is, you know, I have friends who are dialing into Zoom or Teams with COVID. They can't sit up, um, but they feel that they need to be constantly on to contribute to work. Um, they feel they can't go two blocks to the salad bar um, because someone might have stolen their brief when they come back, um, which is the joy of working at wow. Um But also... Yeah, it's hard. We where is where is the line? Um, and yes, sometimes it feels glorious at lunchtime to make yourself a full lunch or to be able to bathe your baby um, and then jump on a call. But there, we've just given up any kind of boundary. And that's got worse, hasn't it? I suppose w working from home was great for lots of people, and the adjustment happened really quickly, didn't it? But it's bleeding and there's so much commentary about this right there's it's bleeding into our personal lives and our our so-called downtime way more than it than it should and i suppose in the uh marketing agency world the ad agency world the role of pitching still is one that comes up for me as constantly putting a stress on on the people that need to be part of that pitch and i quite it's still so so celebrated to to work three weeks straight doing all eight all nighters for kind of five or six nights and that that to me seems like it's such a an obvious thing to try to stamp out but yet isn't yeah is and i think even within that there's a hierarchy within department and specialism as well if you're in the room you know you sweat it out and then if you're in the room the night before you get to go home before midnight 
um, but the suits stay through and see you the next morning in their previous clothes when you've gone home to shower and change. The art workers are working all through the night until the last minute. Um, the expectation of, I'll take as long as I'm taking. Oh, I've scrapped the strategy, it's, it's changed. Um, we put that pressure onto the next group further and further. Um, it's not good for any of us. And actually, um, I just had an RFP in LA, our LA studio, and um, the work was good and we submitted it a day early because there was peace there. We were happy, we were confident, and because everybody was treated well and we could create this environment where we didn't have to second guess ourselves, we didn't have to go bananas, we made the room for it. Um, and it felt amazing, it felt really amazing. Um, and I know in other rooms I've been in, someone would have gone, oh, we're missing a trick, let's burn it down and start again. Um, but actually, it's not always the case, but we have to have those spaces. If you want to come up with a good idea, you're going to do well to walk around the Barbican for an hour um, rather than sitting in your sweats thinking I'm going to put off having a shower for another hour or two and some breakfast because I've got to crack this. That must have been a good feeling. Yeah, that's really, that. that is quite monumental actually, isn't it? Sending something, happy with the work, we don't need to sit around and deliberate and argue about this for another day just to get us to the wire that's a re that is quite a um unheard of i would imagine in the ad industry i mean watches go bananas <laughs> like that's what's going to happen isn't it but to have yeah in people and i think a lot of it is um empowering people to do their jobs and asking them not to do the job of the person next to them the strategist's own strategy yeah. They shouldn't also necessarily be dipping, you know, they can influence and inform creative, but creative have that responsibility. And having those those clear lines means that there are less people having to reach a consensus. We're going to trust yeah. you and I'm going to empower you. Go ahead and do it. Totally. Decisions by committee are just, yeah, a, a, a painful way to work, aren't they? Totally. But if I could, I would be saying to my staff, close the laptop and put it under the bed um, and take sick time when you need sick time or um, flexi working is designed to be flexible. Uh, I've got a lot of staff who have family requirements and if that's the case, if you can't travel for this season or perhaps, you know, for the next three years because that's what your kid needs, then we will work around to provide that. Um, and I think we're, I think a lot of agencies are really good at saying that. Um, I think dads suffer really badly um, in this space, right? Because mums are expected to do the work and mums will be passed up for promotion. But equally, if a dad says, I have to go home, um, what are you doing? Why isn't your wife doing that? Yeah, that's a very thorny subject, isn't it? There's another podcast. <laughs> it's so interesting. <laughs> I should shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're, it, it, it's a really interesting observation. Um, I mean, not many people would say dads have it hard, but, but yeah, a mom might. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think it is an interesting point because indeed, as we become more equitable. Um, totally. Well, I, I think Grace and I were talking about it um, before we started recording. And um, part of the reason I'm currently looking after my daughter is to enable my wife to kind of move forward in her career as well there were circumstances that kind of 
meant that we ended up in a situation fortuitously to some degree, but the opportunity presented itself and it was there. It was either she doesn't do it and sacrifices the forward momentum in her career or we take the opportunity and, and let her do it. But it's bloody hard because at the end of the day, her job requires travel. She is someone that, and I'm sure she won't mind me saying this, is getting influx, uh, an influx of WhatsApp messages constantly um, for the work, the project that she's working on. And it's really hard to separate the two. Um, so, of course. Yeah, I think obviously I'm a champion for, for dads doing more of the, the childcare um, and, and will continue to be. But yeah, in, in our industry, it it's unfortunate because it's always going to stunt the female's career or she's judged to be the the woman that doesn't care enough about her children because she wants to prioritise her career, right? And I think we all have an innate need to be understood. And if, if I'm understood, I can't hear you. Um, but with that, you know, it's a hard time to say it's, it's, it's hard to be a man. Um, because, uh, and as a trans person, I'm, I'm watching my government try to use me, not just to strip my rights, but to use me as a distraction for other things that are going on. Um, uh, but equally, uh, the ability to hold for a moment that someone else has it hard, even if you have it harder, allows them in return to hear you more. Um, yeah, I think. I think women and mums in advertising have a very, very hard time. I think women who choose to remain childless have a very hard time um, to make space sometimes to also say, and, you know, the patriarchy also sucks for dads. Um, or it sucks for young men who are churning and churning away and not knowing what they're supposed to do differently, um, waiting to pop an engagement question um, or feeling they need to earn enough money for one day to pay for a family. All of us are getting screwed. The more we can acknowledge how the system benefits no one, the more we can all say, what can we do differently? I'm great one at dinner parties. I I can't speak for two minutes about anything without this coming up. <laughs> I mean, it's um, it sounds to me, this is very glib, we, d we need to make a real effort to understand each other and 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 make those meaningful connections right because like you say everyone has quite a bad a bad time at least at the moment um yeah and that's actually what's going to help us set those boundaries that you mentioned at the top of yeah, the answer right exactly. if we don't take the time to understand and empathize yeah uh, and realize what's going on behind the scenes of people's uh, homes nice. or their lives then those boundaries will never never materialize and the rules and structures of work are the only place we can fight for equity because we're not going to get it anywhere else in life. So if we can try to create tiny pockets in our workplaces just to cut some people a break, that's all I can do. I can't stop any of the atrocities happening in the world, but I can create a space where we can earn a living and it's not quite as hellish as it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Grace. Brilliant. Very deep conversation there. We've got one question to get, yes, haven't we? We've got future. Where do you think we'll be in 10 years? 
Oh, we have. Absolutely. I'm sorry. Yes. Where do you think we will be in 10 years, Grace? <laughs> in an ideal world. Okay. I think remote work will just be called work. Um, I think we will hopefully see the beginning of legislation that allows us, as we've seen in France, um, to have a bit of a break uh, some of the time to turn off. Uh, I think creativity will go in two directions. I think we'll continue to master storytelling, sometimes in a slightly longer format, you know, things like micro documentaries. But then equally, I think we'll recognize that um, as emotive, heart racing and heartbreaking as a lot of the work we do, we'll recognize that sometimes different people want fat data and evidence, and you'll start to see that come through in tech as well. Um, we did a piece earlier in the year for the Financial Times about um, the environment. It's the best, the smartest people in the world saying how to save the world. Um, and we, you know, we did it for readers of the Financial Times who are very powerful people who, and the more powerful you get, the empathy centers in your brain shut off. I could have made them a beautiful documentary. We would have all shed a tear. They would have felt nothing. Evidence helps them. Um, so I think we'll start to see that divide between a UT and evidence um and then even a little bit further on maybe they'll come back together again in a nice way i hope so fantastic and if anyone hasn't seen that work they should look at it because it is phenomenal on the ft the climate game thank you very much thank brilliant you. answer yeah. okay thank you thanks very much grace